you just really don't understand the power that you have when you give to someone and the impact it can have. And it, it really changes our environment. It changes our towns. It changes our companies. It changes our families. I think it's a really well-kept secret that we would really like to start shouting from the rooftops. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and I'm really excited to share today's guest with you because she has a very neat story to tell and a really fantastic platform. Debbie Gray founded several successful businesses over the last 25 years. In 1991, Debbie started Search Solutions, LLC, a boutique executive search firm and spent 16 years assisting clients with middle, senior management, and C-level recruiting needs. She also owned a global distribution company that sold neuromuscular electrical stimulation devices to professional athletes, individuals, and teams, helping athletes recover more quickly from injury and surgery. Debbie started her career selling and marketing IT solutions to the manufacturing industry and has trained in lectures on sales and motivational techniques. She continues to work as a mentor and coach. Debbie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Richard. It's a pleasure to be here today. Absolutely. And I, I want to start, and I often do this with guests because I'm always so interested in people's backgrounds. So you had a largely salesy, businessy, marketing kind of a background, but you are now, you've put this together into doing something a bit different. And we'll talk about that. But talk to me about along the way, what were the things that were most influential to you? in your development in the early parts of your career? Well, I think what I would say is that I'm very interested in how things fit together, sort of uh, looking at the world as if it's a puzzle and I might have some of the pieces and I have to go out and find the other pieces. So in sales and, and marketing, when I was working with IT solutions, I was in the industry when the first integrated solutions were introduced. It was the first time that uh, the marketing department was going to be hooked up to the um, you know, order processing and inventory control and manufacturing. And it was really the first time that systems and technology were integrating people and functions. It used to be that there were uh, systems within accounting and then inventory control had their own system. But as everything came together, forced the companies really to start functioning differently. And from a sales perspective, as I began to understand who was influenced or who was impacted by the information, I would start to actually see the pieces of the puzzle come together. And it was clear where the disconnects were. And from 
the standpoint of selling a large scale system, you know, you really had to have everybody on board because there, there couldn't be, you know, someone who took their ball and, you know, left the playground because they were an integral part of the solution and their information was necessary to move down the line. So, you know, then if I take that and move that into my, um, my search business, it was exactly the same thing. You know, if we were looking for a vice president of, of marketing for a company that uh, was in the pulp and paper industry, that was actually my first assignment was finding a head of, uh, it was actually a head of engineering for the pulp and paper industry in West Virginia. And let me tell you, I've never been to West Virginia and don't know anything about the pulp and paper industry. I had to think about you know, how organizations are structured in general. Is there anything different about that particular industry? What would the current role be that this person you know, could then move into a VP of, of engineering or marketing, depending on what the role was? So it was really always about how things fit together. How can I use one piece uh, and leverage that to find another piece? And information and people became really fascinating aspects of the world for me. Um, If I then take that into what you would say, how is she going to connect this to working with injuries and and post-surgical rehab for athletes, the modality that this system supported was all about figuring out where things come from. So someone will walk into an orthopedist's office and say, you know, doc, I'm having terrible trouble with my knee. And as most physicians, you know, are trained, they'll take an x-ray of the knee, maybe they get an MRI. If they can't find anything, you know, back in the day, they would scope it. Maybe they'd give somebody a cortisone injection. But the way that we looked at the body was we knew that was where the problem wound up. The issue was where did it come from? And again, the way that this philosophy worked, that it was all about what other system failed within the body that allowed that much force to wind up in the knee that it caused an injury. So I've never really looked at it in this way before, but really everything that I've always done has been around figuring out how to put the pieces of a puzzle together. And it's interesting the way that you framed the orthopedic injury, uh, which system failed that, that basically put bone on bone for a knee uh, in the same way you were talking about integrating information and people in these different departments, systems, systems with problems. Very, very interesting the way you, that you framed that. So Debbie, talk to us about where you went from then and, and how that led, to, led you to what you're doing now. Well, about four years ago, uh, my younger son was at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Uh, he was playing varsity baseball for uh, Lehigh and was a business major, actually a marketing and entrepreneurship major, and wound up having a career-ending injury that resulted in multiple surgeries to his wrist. During this process, he had his arm in a big cast and was you know, really like uh, the epitome of the one-arm paper hanger. He needed a lot of help. And he was on a team that consisted of 36 guys. And, you know, he wound up, you know, asking for help from the the same few people over and over again. And he mentioned that a few times and said, you know what? It's really hard asking for help. And, you know, I said, what do you mean? And he said, you know, so 
I can't even zip up my own jacket. He said, that's the level, you know, of help that I need, you know, physically. But, you know, I'm asking the same couple guys for rides around campus. I'm asking the same few people to help me catch up on, you know, the work that I missed when I was out with my injury. He said, why is that? I have a lot of friends and, you know, a very strong network here. And, you know, he came home after that, you know, that year, and he had planned on a a job that he was no longer able to do because of, you know, the cast on his arm. And he said, I wonder if there's a solution to this issue of asking for help. And I said to him, well, you know, I would encourage you to, you know, start researching it. And, you know, he came back a couple of weeks later. I had an office in my home at the time. So, you know, he would come up to my office and he would say, you know, I found this research about X. And he said, I, I don't think I'm alone. I really think this is an issue. And I'd say, that's great. Well, you know, is there any current solution to this? And again, he went off and came back and laid out all the social networks that exist and um, how people are trying to use them to solve the, you know, the issue of how do you get help? And, you know, again, he came back and he said, well, you know, I don't think that any of them really solve this solution, you know, this problem, you know, and here is why. And I said, well, what would it look like? And, you know, again, from my problem solving background, I'm like, okay, check, 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 you know, what would it look like? And he came back with some really rudimentary screen layouts for, you know, an, an app, which was how he envisioned it. And I, I really, I began to look at this and I said, you know what, this is really interesting. We should take this to the next step. So what was the next step? So the concept was that we were going to create an app that would allow people, we hadn't yet honed it down to college students, which is how we launched, but would allow people to give and receive help, you know, of any kind. We were not looking for a pay for app. It wasn't going to be like Uber where you asked for help and someone came and you paid for a ride. It wasn't going to be like Postmates where uh, someone delivered food to you and again, you paid them. It was going to be looking at, is the world, are people really wired to help one another? And what does that mean and what would that look like? So we, we spent some time with an app development company based in Brooklyn. And we said, here's the idea. Here are the rudimentary layouts. How do we go about really evaluating the marketplace to see whether something like, you know, this already exists? So again, we went in, you know, through all this research. We were reading books. There was a book called um, May Day um, by M. Nora Claver. And it, one of the things that, that she highlighted was that seven out of 10 people in any, in any given week need help, but don't ask for it. You know, that's just startling. And her research showed that, you know, the reasons were people didn't want to look weak. People didn't want to be put on the spot. Uh, You didn't want to use up a favor you might need at some point in the future. And you didn't want to look just plain stupid. You know, people raising their hand. um, There were always kids in every class, right, who you knew had questions, but were afraid that somebody would say, you know, hey, Billy, that's the dumbest question I've ever heard. And then, the, you know, obviously the, the kid feels, you know, ashamed or embarrassed and never asks another question again. So what we were trying to do was create a place where people felt comfortable 
asking for help, where you could ask for help without putting someone on the spot. Because there was another um, scenario where I might call you up and say, hey, Dr. Richard, I, I need a ride to the airport on Thursday morning. Would you be able to take me? And you know, I have no idea what your schedule is. And you're saying to yourself, well, gosh, Debbie's a great friend of mine. And she has done a lot for me in the past. But I was going to go to the gym Thursday morning. Even if you say yes, you don't feel like you got credit for your quote unquote help because I asked you and you feel boxed in. You feel like you don't have you know, a way to say no. So you know, how could we create something where we remove all the social constructs that make asking for help difficult? And then we started to look at, well, what actually happens to people when they give help? There was a fascinating article um, in the Wall Street Journal several years ago about a study that was conducted at the Research Institute of Chicago. And Dr. Uh, Jordan Grafman and his colleagues studied, I think it was just under 20 subjects, and they placed them in a functional MRI scanner. And they gave them a list of charities. And they then said, you have a pool of money and you have options. Number one, you can choose to donate the money to a charity of your choice. You can refuse to donate the money, you know, or you could, you know, you could take it, you know, for you could keep it for yourself. And what they found was that the scan showed that when people made a decision to donate to a charity that they felt was worthwhile, that the parts of the midbrain lit up that were the same parts of the brain that light up when, you know, for food and sex, with cravings for food and sex that they were such an integral part of our pleasure centers that actually giving help, you know, you can be selfish by being, you know, selfless, that helping people actually makes you feel so good that it's a physiological response. That's 100% true. In fact, similar studies have been replicated quite a bit. And the part of the brain you're talking about is the mesolimbic system. And it is where we have our pleasure and rewards. And they've actually found in other studies that the same parts of the brain light up, the same physiological and neurological response happen when we give is in the same degree as when we receive. So, you know, we're so focused on getting, getting, getting. But that study is just another example that you're talking about that when we give, we still receive all the positive benefits of receiving. Awesome, awesome study. And we also, to, to just add to that, we're giving the person, we're allowing the person that we're giving to, to receive. You know, you can't receive without somebody giving. So it's where we become like the chicken and an egg. And it's, um, it's really very exciting. So, so fast forward, we're now working with this company where we have screens designed. And in September of 2014, we launched an app called Striver, S-T-R-I-V-R, uh, at Lehigh University in a beta test. It was a free app. It was iPhone only. And our data showed that about 60% of college students had iPhones. And within the first beta and we're you know taught starting from scratch we had 5000 requests for help and offers to help just on lehigh's campus we had 70% of all iphone users you know using striver as a platform 
And there were a couple things that were really just amazing. One thing in particular was if you think about the dynamics of, you know, a university setting, there's often Greek life and, you know, the athletes and the people who um, aren't engaged in either of those things. And, you know, are the art students separate from the engineering students, separate from the business students? And that's typically what you find. Even, you know, certain fraternities don't like other fraternities. You know, baseball and lacrosse are often not, you know, simpatico on, um, on campuses. But what we found was that Striver crossed all of those barriers and that people who didn't, you know, might have seen each other on campus, but certainly weren't friends and definitely were not part of the same, you know, quote unquote, you know, social community, were now helping each other. Uh, people were, you know, putting, um, and these requests were, you know, we weren't talking about, you know, donating a liver or paying, you know, your rent. It was, you know, heck, I'm in the library and I forgot my phone charger and it's about to die. Or does anyone have an extra set of headsets? You know, I'd like to listen to music while I'm studying. Or is anyone going to Dunkin' Donuts? I'm, I'm in my dorm studying and I'd love a cup. You know, so they were just amazing small things that really made an impact. Debbie, did your data indicate that these different groups of people that probably wouldn't socialize in the real world necessarily, but they're helping each other, did your data indicate that that was because of the anonymity that the app provided, or was there something else motivating that? There really wasn't anonymity in the app. It was the feature was there, but nobody used it. Interesting. And another thing that was interesting was that we had originally created the app so that there was, you know, what sort of an inner circle that people could create their, um, you know, think of like a Facebook group, you know, just a private little thing. And I would post a request and only my 10 besties would see it. And then we had the entire community and well over 90% of the requests went to the entire community. So, you know, the anonymity really wasn't used and neither was this private group. People really just wanted to help. And we, we didn't have a way to offer help, you know, without a request in the beginning. And again, the student body at Lehigh started to figure out a way to offer help through a request for help. So instead of seeing, you know, could somebody bring me a cup of coffee or soup, I'm homesick, someone would say, hey, I'm at Duncan and I'm going to the library. Does anybody want anything? And we were like, wow, this is amazing. So we then, you know, put in a, a feature in the app where you could offer help. And that wound up being, you know, five to 10% of the activity that we found. And as we launched at other campuses, we found the same thing. It wasn't, it didn't matter what school, it didn't matter the size. We had 1,800 person um, colleges, you know, to 40,000 person huge spread out campuses. And our statistics in terms of giving and receiving and in terms of uh, the requests that were filled really were consistent across the board. You know, some of our notable statistics were that we found over this period of time, and there were, there were six semesters, that over 90% of the requests for help were filled, which is startling. You know, and, and not to mention the fact that the world looks at, you know, this demographic, 18 to 22-year-olds, as in the prime of selfishness, right? If there's a group that is more self-absorbed and self-focused, 
than most college students. You know, I certainly haven't identified it. So, you know, you have these kids for no money, you know, for nothing but, wow, that felt good. You know, we had gamification in the app and there were all kinds of, you know, there were strivers of the month and strivers of the week and people would proudly hold up their t-shirt. And, you know, for what? Wow, I helped the most people. Like, how cool is that? It's extremely cool. So this has been spreading on campuses. So how many university settings are you in right now? Well, through the spring of 2016, we had about 45 campuses using Striver. We had over 100,000 requests for help and offers to help. And another interesting data point was that the offers to help outweighed the requests by two to one. And it was sort of an ever-increasing delta, which was neat. So where is Striver today? Striver still exists on many campuses. We, you know, we have downloads, you know, daily. We made a decision in the spring of 2016 to focus our resources more in the enterprise space based on an opportunity that presented us. So, you know, while Striver, you know, is still alive and well and being used in some interesting ways, um, all of our resources and focus is now on our enterprise product, which is called Bridge. So talk to us about how Bridge has evolved from Striver and in what ways they're, they're different. So Bridge was, we were, you know, growing and, and sort of minding our own business, just getting great press on, on all these campuses. And we're part of an incubator that's on uh, Lehigh University's campus called Ben Franklin Tech Ventures. And through the incubator, a Fortune 500 pharmaceutical company expressed interest in meeting with us and went to our executive director and said, you know, I'd like to talk to these guys. And, you know, the director said, you know, are you aware that they help college kids help each other? And the person who was the head of global innovation said, I, I get that, but they have figured out a way to get people to help each other. And we've been trying to figure out how to do that within our company for 15 years and we haven't broken the code. We'd like to know what they did and see if they could help us do it. So what happened after that? That's, that's kind of a wild story. Again, probably wasn't on your radar at all. You guys were so focused in the college sector, so to speak, and, the, and all of a sudden, here comes the pharmaceutical industry knocking on your door. Yeah, absolutely. It, um, we always knew that, that Striver and this concept had applications you know, in, you know, not just for colleges and universities, but for towns, for not-for-profits, for, um, you know, and for corporate, for, you know, churches and synagogues and really any kind of community. But we just really weren't, we weren't ready to make that switch. And as we started talking to these folks and, and met with their team, we realized there was a tremendous opportunity. And as a small startup, we also realized that with limited resources, we weren't going to be able to continue to uh, aggressively grow Striver, as well as go down um, this other avenue. So after working with these folks for a while and uh, doing some research, and that's really what turned us, you know, gave us the impetus based on their response to what we were doing, as well as this um, field of research that we found, we thought it made sense for us to really focus on the enterprise space. Which is bridge. Which is bridge.
Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. So you began focusing on the enterprise. So tell us about how Bridge differs from Striver in terms of functionality. You know, just as we had done the research on human behavior to figure out why people had trouble giving and receiving help, you know, we we knew instinctively that feel good is awesome, but companies probably were not going to pay just for feel good, um, unfortunately. Um, that we needed to find a hook. So my search background, my research background, uh, I started looking at what the impact was of what happens in companies when employees help one another. And I came across the research of Dr. Philip Podzikoff, who is a a professor at the University of Florida. And a snippet from this quote that really was what, you know, solidified our, our commitment to the enterprise space and I'll read just a little bit of it for you. It says, the frequency with which employees help one another predicts sales revenues in pharmaceutical units and retail stores, profits, cost, and customer service in banks, creativity in consulting and engineering firms, productivity in paper mills, and revenues, operating efficiency, customer satisfaction, and performance quality in restaurants. And I was just like, this is incredible. And I actually reached out to Dr. Podzikoff and, you know, I said, would you spend 15, 20 minutes on the phone with me? You know, I'd love to pick your brain about this. And it turned out that Dr. Podzikoff had created this or or was a, a researcher in this field of study called organizational citizenship behavior, which I personally had never heard of, though I thought I was a, you know, a pretty strong student of human behavior. And that organizational citizenship behavior is all about tracking what happens when people outside of their normal job descriptions help one another in a business setting. So based on that, we looked at creating bridge as a way to encourage these kinds of behaviors within organizations. One of the things that um, Dr. Podzikoff had said to us was that as he and, and others in his field worked with companies, you know, they would, you know, after a half hour, an hour of, of meeting with him and hearing about this research, they would say, well, we're sold. We need to help increase our employees, you know, helping behaviors. We need to increase their organizational citizenship behavior. How do we do it? And he would basically say, well, you're on your own. <laughs> we just know that when it happens, there's incredible benefits. But we don't have a way to increase those in a company. We started to look at what we had and created Bridge as a, we describe a plug and play way for businesses to help their employees help one another. So it creates this environment. And again, the social constructs, um, you know, one of the things that we know is that 
you know, it, culture comes from the top down in an organization and that we needed to present organizations with a compelling enough data that it was worth it to them to say, you know what, this actually makes a lot of sense and we want our employees to help one another. So we need to set the tone for, you know, that, that asking for help is good, that no one will be looked at as weak. Here's my question. So you know, the way you described Striver, you know, that you could ask for help, I've left my car charger at home or I'm sick and I need some soup versus people offering to help. Does this work the same way, you know, in the corporate setting? Like is, is the CEO going to be helping somebody in the mailroom or are these more kind of focused around organizational goals? I think that the answer is both. What we know is that, and Forbes did a, a published a study in uh, July of last year, that individual employees report wasting nearly 23 hours per week searching for the people, information, and data they need to perform their jobs. So there's really a huge gap in people finding the information that they need. So number one, what would, I mean, you don't have to be a a business genius to figure out that if you could cut that by 10%, by 20%, that productivity would rise significantly in organizations. But it's not that I make widgets and, you know, I'm behind in my widget making and I'm going to ask Dr. Richard to assist me in making my widgets. This might be, I'm working on a project and I need data from something, uh, a project that happened six years ago. I don't even know who was in the company six years ago. So I could post on Bridge that I was looking for information about the X725 project. And specifically, I was looking for costing information. Now, the magic of what, in, in Striver, we used categories so so that somebody could say well this is uh, transportation this is you know about school this is um about food this is about delivery so we're like well that's not going to you know help us in the corporate realm so we created proprietary algorithms that help us find the right people within organizations that have either self-identified as being experts or capable in those areas or based on the questions that they've answered before, the system knows what they can do. Very interesting. Very interesting. So we're really not, what we're doing is saying, well, you know, I have a question and, and maybe it's not even about, you know, business. There might be a percentage of questions about, you know, I'm training for a marathon and I'm, you know, following the system that, you know, I found on the internet and I'm at week 12 and I'm having trouble. Has anyone ever, you know, trained for a marathon that can help me? Because no one in my life has. And someone might have, you know, running or long distance running or marathons or athletics. And, you know, you again can, it might be the CEO of the company who's looking to run a marathon and maybe the guy in the mailroom has run three. So that answers my question. And I think what's so cool about this is that there's just the fact that, well, one, your your algorithm to find subject matter experts is astoundingly exceptional. And two, the fact that you can have these, you know, the, the marathon running as an example, you're building a positive culture 
indirectly just by having people engage in the app. Absolutely. So now that you've had this in enterprise settings and you're, of course, tracking the metrics behind it, what type of experiences and and changes have you seen in these companies that have implemented this? Well, we're just, you know, we spent um, nine or 10 months in the um, retooling of Striver to be native on iPhone, Android, and desktop, fully interactive. And we're really just beginning our pilots uh, within organizations. So we're excited about having that data, you know, very shortly. Um, One of the things that's exciting is that Dr. Podzikoff and his associates are anxiously awaiting this data because there's a whole slew of things that they, again, intuitively know, but are looking to, to prove out. One of those things is, you know, does how you ask a question affect, you know, how many responses you get or if you get responses? You know, very um, simply in Striver, we used to, you know, use modeling basically. So, you know, we had brand ambassadors on campuses and those brand ambassadors would you know, at, when they asked questions, it would be, you know, I'm in the library, I'm studying hard. You know, if there's an awesome human being out there who would bring me a Dunkin' Donuts, I'd be eternally grateful and I'll, I'll even pay for yours. You know, exclamation point, happy face. So what is the corporate version of that, right? How do you ask questions in a way that makes people want to answer? Does gender have any you know, effect on who answers questions. And again, one of the other pieces that we do have and that we are quite confident based on all the feedback of the companies we're talking to and working with is that being able to post anonymously is going to be huge in corporations. Because before I am comfortable, um, I'll give you an example. We were talking to a just under a billion dollar manufacturing company last week. And, you know, they were saying that they onboard 75 to 100 salespeople every month. And there are training programs within that company and, you know, they're on a schedule. And if the last training program was um, the end of the first quarter and I join on, you know, April 20th, you know, there might not be another training program until the end of September. So there's information that I don't have. And sure, there's an intranet and all the information is accessible but I'm doing my job and I'm trying to make sales and I don't necessarily take advantage of all those resources. But I'm really scared to go to my manager and say, you know, hey, do we sell to this industry? I haven't seen it in our, our literature. Or could our product adapt this way? Could be a brilliant question, but it could be something that if he had just gone and clicked on one you know, link on the intranet, he'd know the answer to. So the ability to ask that question anonymously, now, again, huge benefit to the organization, because what does the organization want? They want that guy to make a sale. Right. And I I think that you're right, probably unlike the college setting where there was the option to be anonymous, which was not taken up by the students. In a corporate setting, the anonymity probably makes a lot of sense. There's There's an article written I think it was in the first quarter of 2017 by another one of your podcast guests, Paul Zak, who I'm a huge fan of, in Harvard Business Review called The Neuroscience of Trust. And it was all about 
what happens in an organization when trust is created. And uh, Dr. Jim Lair, um, you know, another one of uh, our fans, and we're a huge fan of his, has done a lot of research on this, that when you feel safe, when you feel that you're in a, a trusted environment, um, oxytocin is produced, which actually improves human performance. So again, creating that environment where people can ask for help really does create increased productivity. There was a quote in that um, article that uh, by um, Jim Whitehouse, who's the CEO of Red Hat Software, and you know, paraphrasing it, he basically said that he wished that he knew at the beginning of his career that asking for help or admitting what he didn't know actually would have added to his credibility, as opposed to what he thought, which was that it would detract from his credibility. Really interesting. Well, I certainly am excited to see what the data is going to show from the enterprise. Maybe we'll have you back a year from now or so where you can share that with us. But something you said that that stuck out to me that was kind of interesting is the broad-based applications for this technology. You mentioned nonprofits, you mentioned communities. Well, certainly you guys are focused on the enterprise. Any plans to bring this to the general public? Potentially, yes. And I think it's just a matter of timing. Um, we got a, um, an inbound call from an Alzheimer's association. They were asking if this could, was a tool that could be used to help support their community with caregivers needing help and backup, et cetera. And through that person, um, I said, how did you hear about us? She said, well, I was at a, a lecture at Virginia Commonwealth University, and the speaker mentioned you guys. I'm like, wow, I've never talked to anybody at Virginia Commonwealth University. The, the professor lectures on how to help people with various levels of disability um, get help and access to technology that helps them live easier and more um, productive lives. And he had been talking about actually Striver, you know, this was a while back, and referring people to Striver because this was a great way to create community. You know, we since are talking to them about Bridge because there are some features in Bridge that didn't exist in um, Striver. One, you asked what before what one of some of the differences were. Striver was a completely open community. Uh, if you were at the University of Florida or the University of Michigan, you would be able to, you know, respond to each other's posts. Locally, you would um, identify what school you were at so that your feed would populate with the things that were more local. But because of the nature of enterprise, Bridge is a closed universe. And, you know, that we could create that kind of same thing, whether, again, it was in a religious institution um, or an association or some kind of affiliation, a group of people that associate or connect together in some way. And then you would be able to in invite people. But, you know, there are issues of obviously confidentiality within organizations. And if you're talking about something like this Alzheimer's thing, it could be safety or things of that nature. Sure. No, that makes sense. Certainly there are obstacles, but I, I think I speak for everyone in saying that this technology making its way into the community would be a good thing for everybody. No, absolutely. 
Well, Debbie, I want to circle back around and ask you a question. You mentioned organizational citizenship behavior earlier on and that professor down in, in Florida. Could you talk to us about that? I'm sure there are many people, myself included, that are not overly familiar with that term. Absolutely. There are uh, a number of different elements that make up organizational citizenship behaviors. They refer to them as OCBs. But the data shows that increasing these behaviors increases individual and team productivity, reduces employee turnover, reduces uh, absenteeism, and actually helps employees get better reviews they get promoted faster, and actually, they actually make more money. There's the, a concept that I'm sure you're familiar with in terms of, of performance, of not just the what that you do, but the how. Right. And what, organiz, what, what we're excited about is the, that Bridge can help companies quantify something that has really been you know, completely um, obje- subjective. So that um, if you were a manager in a pharmaceutical company and you had two salespeople and one of them had, you know, a little, 